Our passage today is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 18. And we've been using uh, 1 Peter as a guide to understanding how we should be thinking as Christians. I'm going to get the doors just so. And each time I see new faces, and that's great, but so those of you who've been with me, this may be a little repetitious for a few moments. First um, Peter, I think, is a great Christ for culture book. Peter is addressing a large population scattered throughout what's now Turkey. Silas has brought this letter to them. It's a letter that may have reached um, over 2,000 miles. Silas would have gone on foot, on boat, by animal. Uh, one of the largest mission trips you could imagine, I probably. And it was an arduous kind of journey, I'm sure. And he brought this letter to them, and this letter is addressed to the resident aliens, to the elect exiles, to the chosen outsiders, Christians who have become alienated in their home culture. Overnight, because of Christ, even though they know the language, know the traditions, have become a distinctive tribe, a new people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that God called out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a beautiful, powerful letter that focuses at the beginning on the identity of Christians. They have been born again into a living hope. They have a lasting inheritance. Peter describes beautifully what salvation is all about at the beginning. And then as he progresses, he is talking about them in relationship to culture. And in a way, he celebrates their strangerhood how they have become strangers in their home culture. They have a distinctive identity, a distinctive way of looking at the world, uh, one that is eschatological, looking forward to the fulfillment of that salvation that's been promised to them. And he gives you a bottom-up profile of the Christian life. He doesn't look at the elite members of the culture. He looks at the, the subject, the slave, the woman, in a relationship, in a marriage that uh, with an unbelieving spouse. He looks at the people in that kind of situation as a model for what it is to really be faithful to God in Christ. So here's our passage, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 18. Let's read it. Let's look at it together. It's on the left column of your, your worship folder. Uh, your worship folder. <laughs> left column of your outline. Just come from worship. Going to worship. You are my break. Listen carefully. This is God's word. Finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Now notice that uh, there's a what we call a chiastic structure there. Like-minded is the first descriptive way that we are to live. And the last one is humble or humble-minded. So the first is like-minded, the last is humble-minded, and then the two in between being sympathetic or, uh, and then compassionate. 
So sympathy and compassion, and then the center one, in a chiastic structure with the beginning and the end and the end between, the chiastic structure puts kind of the most important principle at the beginning, at in the middle, I'm sorry, love one another. So finally, all of you, and here's a descriptive way of how we are to be with one another and in the world, like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. See, one of the things that we've tried to stress here is that because of our identity in Christ, there's a certain sense of shalom and peace and compassion and love that characterizes the follower of Jesus Christ. We don't need to get angry. We don't need to be resentful. You know, we need to sort of start to look at our own national problems and issues in the same way that you might look at the national issues and problems of Ghana or the Ecuador or Russia, if you were there, wouldn't there be sort of a distance? There'd be something of a detachment. This would not be your, your main citizenship. And there's that kind of attitude that I think gets cultivated among Christians. This isn't it. Your hope is not in America. It's the kingdom of God, not the Pax Americana. You know, there's just a, a certain sense of, I don't want to say indifference, and I'm not meaning apathy. I'm saying there's just a certain detachment, just like the country that you might work and visit, you care about, and seek to represent Christ in, but it's not your country. And I'm kind of saying, in effect, this is not your country. It's not your primary citizenship. It's not your ultimate citizenship. It's not your eschaton, the American future. And because of that, we don't need to get so agitated and angry. We don't need to be so fearful. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Christians actually see this dissidence with culture as an opportunity for revealing Christ. And that first paragraph on the right column, let me, I'll repeat this. First Peter is important. These notes are really helpful for me, so I'm not too scattered with you. After talking for two services, you could just start talking. Um, I don't want to do that. First Peter is important because it develops believers' foreign status, strangerhood in a fresh way. Christ followers have not typically embraced this thought. I wish that they would. It critiques post-biblical Christianity in the West and inspires no fear of discipleship in the global church. Peter's focus is not on the badness of the culture. I find that liberating. He really could do a number on the culture. The culture was bad. It was alienated from God. There was a lot he could have said, but he didn't. And I, I think that's a lesson to me. Um, rather than spending a lot of time critiquing the culture, now, don't get me wrong, I think there's an element of that critique that needs to be done, needs to be said. But the focus is more on how can I be and how can the church be good in the culture? 
the Apostle Peter's still in that right column, second paragraph. The Apostle Peter's bottom-up profile of costly discipleship is far more radical than we may realize. Submission is critical to First Peter's Christ for Culture strategy. The motivation for this holy submission lies exclusively in the suffering of Christ. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. And that example, that word example, is one that we cannot really get a good equivalent for in our culture because while it is exemplary what Christ has done, the word comes out of early childhood education and how they formed their letters. And it was as if the parent has his or her hand on the son or daughter and is helping them subscribe the note, the letter, moving the hand with it. It's that word in that culture, in that Greek culture. And it's like the Lord has his hand on us and is moving us, shaping us, guiding us, in the example of Christ. Submission uses social hostility as an opportunity under pressure to reveal the goodness of God. Sacrifice is the leverage of the gospel. Now let me just stop there. Are there any comments or questions you want to make having heard my soliloquy for the last 10 minutes? Submission uses this hostility as an opportunity. Can't you elaborate a little bit? Submission uses social hostility as an opportunity under pressure to reveal the goodness of God. Um, well, yeah. No, it does. Um, in here, I describe the day in the life of a university student. And... Yeah, let me read this. Consider a believer's daily experience on a typical university campus. She starts her day in English class when her professor begins class with a quote from Solomon Rushdie. The quote is this, literature is where I go to explore the highest and lowest points in human society, where I hope to find not absolute truth, but the truth of the tale, truth of the imagination. He goes on to lecture the class on the myth of absolute truth. And he mocks the, motion, the notion of divine revelation in the Bible. He equates the Bible with the Book of Mormon and the Quran and argues that the educated mind cannot tolerate dependence on obsolete creeds and truth claims built on thin air. Now that's your child listening to that lecture. Her next class is Introduction to Psychology, taught by the faculty advisor of the LGBTQ club on campus. Class begins with a discussion on repressive sexual patterns in society and family. The professor makes it clear that she will not even tolerate the notion that marriage between a man and woman is normative for society. After class, our student heads to her dorm, but to her surprise, she finds her roommate in bed with a boyfriend so she heads for Starbucks. <laughs> Over a latte, she reads for cl class Tom Wolfe's latest, Back to Blood. Well, Tom Wolfe is one of our top American novelists, and I, I try to stay up somewhat. I force myself at times to read. Um, and I read Back to Blood, and 
you know, if Wolf is right, we are a far more decadent culture than she, our student, ever imagined. He describes a world devoid of friendship and even common decency. His characters are oversexed adult adolescents. Later in the day, she meets up with friends and heads to an evening meeting of an on-campus ministry. The speaker's talk is titled is entitled Breathing Room. It is a nice talk with some good jokes and stories about messy roommates and busy schedules and the need to clean up the clutter in our lives, but it all leaves her feeling very empty. On a typical day, Christians on a university campus face a constant verbal and mental assault on their faith and ethics. We send a real odd assortment of people out into the mission field, (laughs) unsuspectingly often, in terms of what they're going to face and confront. But I'm saying if we are aware of it, if we understand it, if we're sympathetic and compassionate with our sisters and brothers in Christ experiencing that, that's the first step toward them really being missionaries in that culture. Back at verse 10 on the left-hand column in our text in 1 Peter 3, 4, and then Peter quotes from Psalm 34. He makes seven allusions to Psalm 34 in his letter. This is the main one. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil, their lips from deceitful speech, They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you? I I just picture Silas working through the letter with these. um, It's the only letter that's been addressed to rural Christians. Every other letter in the New Testament is addressed to urban Christians. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? And I bet there were moans and sighs. Yeah, who right? You know, we could tell story after story after story of what it's meant for us to follow Jesus Christ and to feel the resistance to the culture. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is good, you're blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. And don't be angry. We have no need to be angry in this election. We really don't. This is an opportunity for us to really underscore where our hope lies and where the strength of truth lies. I'd suggest to you that, you know, after yesterday's uh, disclosure, You've got now many Republicans saying that they couldn't possibly support Trump. And they're basically saying Hillary's awful. And maybe I'm thinking they're getting to the place where I think all Christians ought to be. That the hope is not in either party. That the system is rigged on both sides of the aisle. And while we have to work with that system, for sure, I just want us to take on a different kind of perspective toward both parties and to our political system. 
we've made politics way out to be so much more important than it is for running this nation. I've been pretty good at staying fairly distant from the practical political problem, as you know, for the last three weeks. So I've made comments like that. Um, but my nephew wrote, he's a lawyer in Colorado, and there was a breaking point for him in this, and it was a, a long and well-written statement about uh, the political problem. But I would suggest to him that he's just now seen what, is the failure of both sides. If Christ is not Lord, whoever you are, it's a problem. Verse 15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I have always preached, taught, thought about those verses, verse 15, that verse, in the light of being intellectually prepared to give people answers. That's how I've interpreted that verse. Always be pre prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. Do you have an apology that can really address particular intellectual problems and issues? Now I come to understand these words in the light of the whole letter and realize the answer is not in a really nice propositional thought. The answer is in the life. It's in the life. It's the way we submit. It's the way we respond to social hostility. It is the way we practice the Sermon on the Mount of being salt and light. That's always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but Cormac McCarthy wrote a one-act play entitled The Sunset Limited. Have any of you seen the movie? It's really good. If you can find it on Netflix or whatever you watch, it's really worth watching. Samuel L. Jackson, black guy. Tommy Lee Jones, a white guy. They play this, they play, an, uh, the one act drama occurs all in this New York ghetto apartment that belongs to, to black. In the, in the book, they're just black and white. And Samuel Lee Jackson plays black. Tommy Lee Jones plays white. And black has just rescued white, Tommy Lee Jones, a university professor who threw himself in front of a New York subway train. And Samuel Lee Jackson jumped down, pulled him up, and now he's hauled him back to his apartment. And he's locked and bolted the door because he doesn't want White to leave until White confesses that he will not do that again. And the whole thing is the dialogue between the two. And you have a university professor that is struggling with nihilism and against anything. And, and Black, a convict who came to Christ in prison, is making the case that you have something to live for because God loves you. It's a really pow I mean, they do a great job with this. It really boosted my respect for those two actors because they really did it well. Well, Tommy Lee Jones finally convinces Black that he's got to unbolt the door and he's going to get out. And he hasn't been convinced. And 
you know, he, he just he says, you know, your God may have been there at the start and set it all in motion, but he sure as not doing the, what needs to be done now. And he leaves the door and and black Samuel L. Jackson falls to the ground weeping, feeling like such a failure of having not convinced him of not getting through. And he says, he kind of looks up as if praying, not as if praying, he looks up and he says, why do you give him all the words? Why don't you give me the words? And why do you give him all the words? And then he says, okay, even if you don't give me the words, I will live by your word. And that's really the climax. I will live by your word. And i that's how we do it. <laughs> We're not going to have the right words. Forget that. You don't have to match word for word with the alienation of a culture like ours. It's not going to even work that way. We're not going to win them over intellectually as the starting point. We're going to convince them by living the word. Um, so always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. You do it by your family. You do it by your relationships. You do it how you live for Christ. Sunset Limited. It's a novel. Uh, and uh, I saw the movie first and then read the novel. Um, so I could get the dialogue down. Both are really good. It's a very short piece. It's not long. Yeah, I've, I've got it on here. It's the second to the last paragraph on the opposite page. The true spirit of Peter's apologetic message is captured in Cormac McCarthy's dramatic novel, Sunset Limited. Um, let's just finish reading this. But, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And he is put to death in the body. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This is one of the, you know, the... Um, I think I said it last week that the only place where explicitly Isaiah 53 is connected to or spoken of Christ's sacrifice is in 1 Peter when it's talking about slaves being submissive to their masters. Um, and, you know, all of that needs a lot of qualification, I realize. It's a very different way of revolution. It's a quiet revolution. It's a revolution from the soul, from the inside out, not the outside in. Um, it's become such an ugly word. Well, I'm going to try to reclaim it. I'm going to keep it. Uh, and we keep working with it. Um, I know it, it, it is a tool in the hand of an oppressor. But um, I'm, we can understand it and grasp it from a Christian perspective. Let me illustrate on a practical way a little bit 
more of what I mean by this. Uh, a prospective student came to see me, um, lives here in Birmingham, goes to Auburn or Alabama, doesn't make any difference to me. Um, one of those schools, and, uh, and he raised as a Christian, but it was only in the last few years where Christ really meant something to him as he expressed it. And I said, well, what was the trigger for that? And he said, I was, I was working at Publix and hating it, absolutely hated it. And he said, I would try to make myself as scarce as possible. I would sort of hide from the manager. I did as little work as possible. And one day I was bagging groceries. And a woman said to me, one of the customers, you really don't like working here, do you? And he said, that comment really got to me. He said, I went home. And he said, in tears, I repented. I said, I'd been a really terrible Christian witness. And he prayed for help. He prayed for a different work ethic. And slowly, this he started changing at work, tried to do whatever he could do. He said, before, with his bad attitude, the hours took forever. It was such a long day. But now, with the new attitude, and really coming up to the manager to be put to work. He said, it's like the day flew by. And he said, after several months of this, he was bagging groceries for somebody, and somebody said to him, a lady said to him, you really like working here, don't you? <laughs> and I know, you know, that's a little mini illustration, but I think it speaks volumes of an attitude, of a way of approaching life, of a way of dealing with life, um, that it's your job is never just bagging groceries as a Christian, is it? Um, it's never reduced to that. Whether you're low in the labor market or high in the labor market, it's never just that. It is, I think, um, enjoying Christ in all of those spheres of life. Have you, any of you seen this book, David and Goliath, by Malcolm Gladwell? Oh, it's in airports everywhere, so you've seen the cover. Uh, Gladwell is just an, a fun writer. He's a good writer and uh, I think touches on interesting themes. But I, in this particular, this particular book... Um, he talks about in this David and Goliath book that underdogs really learn how to work the system. So he'll talk, there's a chapter on a dyslexic person and how that person has risen to one of being uh, one of the top hedge fund uh, people on Wall Street uh, because he learned how to work the system. He learned how to use his his um, problem and you know it kind of stems from his thesis that David and Goliath David was the smart one he slung that stone at the speed of a bullet he had the maneuverability so it was more like he practically worked out how he can get around the system and that's what Gladwell's book is about you can learn how to take your deficiency and work the system through duplicity through manipulation through bullying I mean, he, he has all these stories in. 
And it's just the, it's the exact contrast. Yeah, I've got a theology of underdog here. But I'm not a theology of underdog working the system through duplicity, through manipulation, through power politics in order to gain my way. I have a theology of underdog in order to show the goodness of God in Christ, humbly, depending on the mercy of God. All of that to say we embrace the passion of Christ as not only the way of salvation, but as the strategy for living in culture. And that's where Peter's radical. This is not often how we may think, but it's how we should think. Comments? You two are so quick. (laughs) (laughs) The working of the system, it's not so strange, but reminds me of the absolute contrast between the good shoulder Schweik and Wozzeck. Schweik knew how to work the system so he didn't have to fight. He could be nonviolent. Wozzeck was absolutely oppressed by the system and died because of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does this make sense, what I'm suggesting? We had this conversation one time about whether to stay or whether to quit. And I think we're still struggling with that, all of us. Whether to stay or whether to quit, because submission does not mean quit. Mm -hmm. There's no way. Is there? No, submission isn't passivity. There's a big difference in my mind between willed passivity and passivity. Um, There's a big difference between naivety and holy naivety. Um, I'm always struck by the fact that um, God really liked Abel's sacrifice. He liked the lamb that was slain. And yet Abel became a slain lamb. And God informed Cain, don't be angry. He talked, he conversed with Cain, but he never talked to Abel. And Abel walked into that relationship with Cain blind. And he's God's man. God's man and God favored what he did. And God allowed him to be, in a sense, the first person walking to the cross. So the person who gave the lamb became the lamb right off in one of the most early acts of worship we have recorded. And I sometimes think, God, why were you so unfair to Abel? (laughs) He was your man. And you let him walk into that death trap. And that's exactly what God did. And that's the kind of God we serve. Yeah. Well, I think I, I really appreciate your thoughts on this, and, and it makes me think of how I think our culture says separation of church and state, but often our culture is leaving the church, and therefore the state, the politics, becomes a form of church hmm. um, in the sense of if we get it right, everything will be well, and that's what our politicians tell us. If you choose me, mm-hmm. I will perfect the world. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I do believe that as American citizens, it, I, I, I encourage people to go vote. Um, but I think it's a, a really healthy reminder that we do not have our hope in them. That yes, we want to participate in the system in which we live. However, that's not where our hope lies. And I think that um, there has been a, a misappropriation, I think, from some pastors who have spoken out and taken strong political action and spoken to congregations, you know, as in terms of leading them on where to vote. And I think that the trouble with that, that I, I feel or I see, is that that does lead one to believe that the election might actually solve all our problems yeah. when only Christ can right. do that. Um, and so I appreciate the comfort and security of being reminded of that truth, that over all of this, God is sovereign. So thank you. And both parties sort of stand over there, both. Um, and yet, I mean, the encouragement to vote, I think, is right uh, with an understanding of just how minimal that political system can really help us. Four years, we'll be right back again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I'm afraid that, you know, this, this, this culture of hate and vindictiveness, which we've sort of got more and more gotten into, is only going to continue which I hope Christians can be a stark contrast to that. Um, because it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, from a theological standpoint, it has no basis. From a practical standpoint, it has no usefulness. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm not being pragmatic here, uh, but I think this is a great opportunity for the church to stand um, positively out of the goodness of God with this uh, in this character description of the church being sympathetic and compassionate, humble-minded, like-minded, loving one another. Um, in a way, the cathedral, the advent, is sort of our political base of a radically different agenda than the world has. Or so we think, I hope. Um, <laughs> Well, I better sit down and get ready for preaching again. Um, how about one or two of you lead us in prayer, and then I'll close. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we unite our hearts and minds with thanksgiving for your word. We thank you for your servant, Doug, as he's able to prepare it and teach us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit to guide and lead us to your truth. And Lord, we realize the corruption and pollution in the world that we face. But we thank you that we are no longer citizens of this world, but your eternal kingdom. Mm -hmm. And we thank you and praise you for this. In Jesus' name. Lord God, please make us mindful this week of your encouraging and sacrificial presence with us. We thank you for your love and for your mercy. Help us uh, to serve you by the power of your spirit to the glory of the Father in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.